Signal is a podcast by the Bucks County Beacon. I'm your host and the Beacon's editor-in-chief, Cyril Michalego. Twice a month, we'll use this space to shine a light on the right-wing extremist currents streaming through Bucks County and beyond. We'll talk to guests who will help listeners navigate these perilous political waters by providing insight, analysis, and organizing solutions so that we can steer the community toward calmer, saner, progressive routes. Catherine Stewart is an investigative reporter and author who has covered the Christian right, politics, policy, and education for over a decade. Her latest book, The Power Worshippers, Inside the Dangerous Rise of Religious Nationalism, pulls back the curtain on the inner workings and leading personalities of a movement that has turned religion into a tool for political power and domination. Stewart's journalism appears in the New York Times op-ed page, NBC, The New Republic, and the New York Review of Books. Hi, Catherine. Welcome to The Signal. Thanks so much for having me. It's great to be in conversation with you. So you've been researching and reporting on the Christian right roughly since 2009. Can you tell listeners what led you down this path? Well, it started when I was living in Santa Barbara, California. Our daughter was attending a public elementary school. She was a first grader and our son was a baby. And I heard from another mom that something called a good news club was coming to our daughter's public elementary school. And listen, my first thought was, wow, good news. What could be bad about that? And then I learned they were teaching Bible study from a non-denominational standpoint. I suppose I was pretty naive. I thought non-denominational meant non-sectarian. And look, I'm a big free speech supporter, and I think people can teach about religion even in public schools from a truly non-sectarian standpoint as literature or um, history or things like that. Um, The fact that they were going into an elementary school was interesting to me, but it didn't set off alarm bells until I started hearing stories from other parents in town whose kids went to public schools, public elementary schools where these good news clubs had been established. And I started to hear how the kids who were attending these clubs would buttonhole and target kids from other faiths for what I could really only describe as faith-based bigotry and bullying. They would say, you're going to go to hell without Jesus. And I know it's true because I learned it in school and they don't teach things in public schools and in school that aren't true. Because, you know, public schools have a kind of cloak of authority in the minds of very young children. Um, You know, these good news clubs are not in middle schools or high schools. They're really in elementary schools where kids are in their very earliest years of learning. And they're using resources like, um, they call it a wordless book. It has no no words, just images and shapes. And they use this to persuade very young kids that they're going to go to hell if they don't conform. And, um, you know, kids at that age cannot make a distinction between what's taught in their school and what's taught by their school. I think it's, it's happening in the public school and an adult is teaching it you know, that has a kind of authority. So that really set me down my path. I really couldn't understand how these sectarian clubs were entering the public schools, given our separation of church and state. And the leadership of the organization, you know, I started doing a bit of research, 
in Santa Barbara, the arrival of a Good News Club was incredibly divisive in our community, our religiously diverse community. Maybe a third to a half of the parent body were evangelical, but even evangelicalism is very diverse in America. And a lot of the evangelical parents were the most forceful opponents of a Good News Club. A number of them met with the Good News Club leaders, actually, and said, you know, we you're not right for our school. We'd like to offer you free speech, free speech in the church that was next door to the school, a really beautiful church that said, same time for free, you can be in our church. And the Good News Club leaders declined. And so I was trying to figure out, why do they want to be in the public schools? What gave them the right to be in the public schools? And, and why did the Good News Club leaders actually seem happy about the division that they were causing in our public school community. They, you know, parents started arguing about this and this is, you know, was a very divisive issue, even within the evangelical community at our school. And they just seemed sort of happy about that. That really set me down my path. I realized that these good news clubs are really just one small part of a larger attack on public education. And the attack on public education was one part of a larger attack on on America as a modern pluralistic democracy. So that's really how I fell down this rabbit hole <laughs> that I'm in. And I've been writing about this uh, area, the sort of an- anti-democratic movement since 2009, published two books and, and finishing up a third. So, so let's talk about this, you know, anti-democratic movement that's led in this case by the Christian right you know, how would you define the Christian right? I almost think of it as a, a movement of movements, right? That maybe includes like white and other Christian nationalists, the new apostolic reformation, evangelicals, even big business and others who aren't um, exactly indistinguishable, but whose goals kind of often overlap. That's a great question. Definitions matter. Different people use different terms to describe what we're looking at. I use terms like Christian right, and sometimes I use the term Christian nationalism to describe the larger movement. Sometimes, listen, we're not dealing with just a cultural movement. We're dealing with a political movement, which is why I sometimes use that term Christian nationalism, a sort of fusion of a certain idea of religion with an understanding of what nationalism is. But I think we should really be clear on what Christian nationalism is not also. It's not a religion. It is not Christianity. As you know, it's a political phenomenon that involves the exploitation of religion for political purposes. So I think of it as uh, embodying two things. The first, an ideology, a set of ideas, the idea that America was founded as an explicitly conservative Christian nation, but it's fallen under the control of secular liberal cosmopolitans. And the right kinds of Christians need to take control and restore it to its supposedly biblical foundations. But it's also, beyond that, um, uh, just an ideology, a a movement, uh, um, an organized quest for political power. And the movement is leadership-driven, and it's also organization-driven. And that's one of the reasons why it's so strong. You can have these leaders like, say, Jerry Falwell Jr., who sort of fall out or get in trouble and and they're gone. But the organizations that they were a part of persist. And that's one of the things that gives this movement its strength. And there's a sort of dense organizational infrastructure. This movement can sort of divide it into certain categories. So there's 
a, a, a sort of legal advocacy sphere, like these sort of legal groups like the Alliance Defending Freedom or Liberty Council um, uh, or the Federal Society, which plays a role in grooming and supporting sort of far-right candidates for judicial positions. You have policy groups like the Family Research Council or the American Family Association, and many of them have activist arms. I think about Heritage and Heritage Action, which is the activist arm of the Heritage uh, Foundation. You have networking organizations like the Council for National Policy, which gets the leadership on the same page, leaders of different organizations, and then it brings them together with the deep-pocketed donors who fund this movement. There's, you know, the movement has a Account, you know, it's funded by a, a lot of very, very wealthy people. There are data initiatives, um, legislative initiatives, uh, and a sort of vast, far-right, often fact-free messaging sphere, all united in a certain kind of political vision, a common political vision. And I think it's really important to note that some people call this, you know, the, they say, quote, unquote, the evangelicals. Evangelicalism is diverse in America, and yes, the movement includes many evangelicals, but it excludes many evangelicals as well. And it draws in representatives of a variety of both Protestant and non-Protestant religion. The movement would be nowhere without a cohort of ultra-traditionalist or ultra-conservative Catholics. And I think about the Jewish funder, um, uh, Barry Side, who uh, formed the Marble Freedom Trust with 1.6 billion dollar donation and put Leonard Leo, who was um, played this key role in the federal society, put, put Leonard Leo in charge of it. So there, there are just a lot of different factions, but what unites this movement is sort of opposition to what they see as a, a modern secular uh, republic. And the movement has becoming more and more explicitly anti-democratic as time goes on. So, you know, what is their vision or, or what is the their end game? Is it like imposing what amounts to Christian theocracy that legislates and um, forces upon the population a, a reactionary Christian biblical worldview on our lives? Uh, for some, absolutely. I mean, I, I think they're, you know, different cohorts and they don't always want uh, exactly the same thing. You've got, you know, the activists, the sort of activist leaders of the different organizations. You have the deep pocketed funders, uh, and then and then you have the, you know, the preachers, of course, the sort of uh, religious leaders, and then you have the rank and file. When you're talking about the rank and file, you're talking about a very wide range of people with different interests and backgrounds, and many of them don't really want anything like what I would call a theocracy when they're voting for the political candidate who promises to end abortion or protect the American family. Oftentimes they're really just making a statement about who they are and what they value in themselves. But when you're talking about the leadership and these different factions of leadership, sometimes they want different things. Some of the religious leaders are very explicit about wanting a theocracy where the right kinds of Christians will dominate over every key, often they call them the seven mountains or molders of culture, including government, education, et cetera, et cetera. A lot of times the funders are more motivated, I would say, by economic uh, goals than religious goals. If you sort of dig into some of what some of them have written, you can see what they're really hoping for is low taxes for the rich and um, minimal regulation of business and minimal regulation for the environment, because a lot of them 
are involved with these, in these businesses and they're really aiming for the kinds of policies that are going to actually intensify economic inequality. And it's really interesting because this is a movement whose leaders claims to stand for family values, but they're driving support for politicians whose policies are actually making it harder for so many American families to succeed. And when it comes to what the leaders, uh, the you know political leaders want, or what the some of the religious leaders or activists want, you know they want power for themselves and their political allies. They want money, access to private money, and often public money. And they want policies that privilege sort of correct religious and political viewpoints. They're basically trying to create a sort of in-group versus out-group, a, a sense of the pure and the impure. Religion and politics, a sort of odd fusion of religion and politics plays that is the dividing line. I feel like this has been a pretty successful movement, right? And, and, and I feel like their, their profile has been raised over the last, oh, you know, five, 10 years, maybe. What has made them so successful? I mean, obviously, money from oligarchs help, right? But, you know, you can't just rely on that. I mean, there's strategy and tactics as well. So what are some of the, um, their strategies and tactics that you think have been most effective? The movement has invested in its infrastructure for over five decades. And that deep organizational infrastructure is what has made the movement so successful. And in my view, they devote a lot of money to messaging and and message and testing messaging. So a lot of the way that I do my research is I go to right-wing conferences and gatherings and strategy meetings. And I remember, you know, I've been several times to the National Pro-Life Summit. It's a big anti-abortion gathering that takes place in Washington, D.C. every year. And they'll have these different messaging seminars where they're not just talking about like, you know, like our body, our choice, or like the same thing, or, or you know, it's a human life. They're not using the same message that has, or the same slogans that were used 20 years ago. They're very proactive, and they don't just do it, you know, these new mess- this new messaging for every sector of America. They segment it. This is how you talk to the high schoolers. This is how you talk to the college kids. This is how you talk to the, the mothers. This is how you talk to the, the fathers. This is how you talk to the grandparents. So they're very sophisticated. They spend a lot of money doing market testing, or they, you know, they try different things. It reminds me of the start of the New Right, a movement that arose in the late 1970s, early 1980s. These folks were talking Paul Weirich, Howard Phillips, um, Phyllis Schlafly. They were very upset with the direction of the Republican Party. They thought it was becoming too liberal and too soft on communism. They sort of wanted to drag it off to the right, essentially. They wanted to reignite a hyper-conservative counter-revolution. They were not, you know, they just threw a bunch of stuff against the wall and they were not afraid to fail. But the key thing was they kept going and they kept figuring out, you know, they, they had a long vision I often think about David Barton. You know who he is. He's a, one of the key myth makers of the Christian right. He puts together, strings together out of context quotes from the founders and comes up with a myth of America's allegedly conservative Christian founding. And he said, um, I don't have the quote in front of me, but I quote it in power. He says, he talks about how we need the strategy of a distance runner, not a sprinter. And I feel like, first of all, those of us who are opposed to this 
movement of conquest and division were really behind the ball for a long time. When I started writing about this stuff back in 2009, 2010, everybody was reporting, oh, the rise of the nuns, the Christian right is over. It's like, are you paying attention to what they're doing in the courts? You know, they had that legal strategy sewn up. They had already brought the right novel cases to the right courts. They were going to get their key decisions. They were going to degrade the wall of separation between church and state and eventually eliminate it. You know, they were very clever about that. They really played the long game. And so it took a long time for the sort of center liberal left to catch up. And now everybody sort of recognizes it, right? But is still looking for a magic bullet. It's like, what's the message we can use that will interrupt this thing? Well, there are no shortcuts. We need to do the hard, sometimes, you know, slog, unsexy slog of democracy building to push back on this movement. But it's imperative that we do it, not just for ourselves, but for future generations. This is what they did. They were patient, they were strategic, and they played the long game. And that's what those of us who want to prevent a total theocratic takeover of our country and and a destruction of our democracy need to do in response. Let's talk about the Johnson Amendment for a moment, Um, the federal law passed in 54 that bars churches from endorsing and financially supporting political parties and candidates. It seems like the religious right is not following the law when it comes to this. Uh, For example, last summer, in Pennsylvania, um, Pastor uh, Tim Throckmorton, the national director of community impact at the Family Research Council, he hosted an event in Philly, uh, which according to the advertised description was a training for, quote, for all pastors and lay people to attend, to learn how you can help Doug Mastriano and Carrie Del Rosso become our next governor and lieutenant governor. This informational event will provide information for pastors and their congregants on how they can talk to their congregation concerning politics without endangering their tax-exempt status. I mean, it almost seems like they're admitting guilt here. Or, you know, are there just actual loopholes which allow them to help a political party and political candidate without technically helping? The key point, I'm glad you brought this up, the key point is that the Johnson Amendment is no longer a serious force. It doesn't stop a significant amount of politicking by churches, but it has been converted into a rhetorical tool that's useful for Christian nationalists to suggest that they're being oppressed and silenced. And in that way, it's a benefit for them, right? They can say, they're uh, they're opposing our free speech. So for them, it's the best of both worlds because they can pretend they're being silenced and not allowed to divert money and messaging in service of their political causes, when in fact they do all those things. What stops it from being enforced, though? Anytime that folks, uh, the IRS has tried to enforce it, the right has pushed back really dramatically. Like in 2007, it was a, a committee led by Charles Grassley, who's a Republican. It was like a Republican-led committee started investigating a group of pastors, including Paula White. We know who she is, right? Creflo Dollar, I think, was in that. A number of the sort of prosperity gospel preachers uh, were uh, were involved in that. Uh, Colson, I think, is one of them. These were pastors who had private planes, airplane leasing companies, multiple houses, all of which they were calling 
tax exempt because they said that's part of their their um, uh, their ministry. Chuck Grassley and his Republican friends, I think there may have been some Democrats on the committee, but his Republican-led committee, said, why are we giving these people tax exemptions? They're just making money. They started doing an investigation, and these folks just screamed loudly, and they said, we're being persecuted. They sort of worked that persecution narrative. They made such a fuss that the committee pulled back, and they made a recommendation that these folks should just self-police, right? Just, you know, you guys should be more responsible and you're going to be, you know, in charge of being responsible and making sure you're not abusing your tax-exempt status. But look how that's gone. You know, it's really interesting. So there are these pastor organizations like Watchmen on the Wall or Faith Faith Wins. And what they do is they get these conservative-leaning pastors together. You know, they've done hundreds of these events like Faith Wins, for example, it did, you know, I don't know, like maybe 200 events in the last few years, often in swing states, Watchmen on the Wall does very much the same thing. They get these pastors together and then they host these events. They give them lunch or breakfast and they have speakers come. And the speakers include people like, like I went to a Faith Wins event. You had David Barton there talking about America is a conservative Christian nation. Pastors need to step up. And then they have people like Chad Connolly from the Council for National Policy saying it's up to you to turn this country around, you know, we're in a war, et cetera, et cetera. And then they had interesting people like this guy named Hogan Gidley, who was a former member of the Trump administration. And he was billed as an elections integrity expert. And he was there to spread lies about the 2020 election. And he was saying, you know, the election was stolen, dead people were voting. And then here's the funny thing. He goes, you saw what they did in Arizona. And this is just a few weeks after the Republican-led committee in Arizona had looked for evidence of fraud and didn't find any. You remember the cyber ninjas, right? They looked for fraud. They were motivated to find it. And at the end of the day, they're like, uh, you know, we didn't find any fraud. We just didn't. And Hogan Gidley is still there pushing this myth that there is fraud even after it had been debunked. And then you had this you know, pastor come up there and say, the church is not a cruise ship. The church is a battleship. You need to get your congregants out to vote. And then they distributed, there were tens of thousands of, looked like tens of thousands of voter guides in large stacks. And pastors were encouraged to take them and put them in their cars. And uh, maybe there weren't tens, maybe they're just thousands, but like people were carrying stacks of voter guides to put into their car. And when you look at these voter guides, guides they're, they're not like vote Republican or vote Democrat, but these voter guides leave no question about how people are supposed to vote. They say, you know, you need to vote your biblical values, and these are the biblical issues that matter. It's always abortion, same-sex marriage, things like that. They know very well if you can get people to vote on two or three issues, you can control their vote. So they devote enormous resources into politicizing these pastors and getting them to tell their congregants they need to vote their biblical values, and then communicating to the congregants which which values supposedly matter. So, so do you think that like churches and religious leaders should just stay out of politics completely? Or is there a, a line that they shouldn't cross? Because, you know, say back in the 80s when there was a more vibrant religious left, right, um, you know, we, we saw the religious left uh, engage in activism and advocacy 
against Reagan's dirty wars in Central America, as well as the sanctuary movement at the time that helped these refugees fleeing these dirty wars and, and these death squads that the U.S. was kind of arming and supporting at the time. You know, I admit my biases for me. I like, you know, I like the fact that, you know, the, the, the church was kind of like taking a moral stance on that. Is, is there a difference between what was happening then and what the religious right is doing now? I think it's one thing to engage in um, feeding the poor and human rights and, um, and, and churches helping people. But I think it's another thing entirely to engage in partisan politics. The justification for the tax exemptions, the exemptions from anti-discrimination law, the personage exemptions, and the many other privileges that uh, religious communities have is that they are supposed to stay out of explicitly partisan politics. Let's not forget that churches have benefits and privileges that other non-religious nonprofits do not have. They don't have to adhere to anti-discrimination law. They can uh, discriminate against women if they like. They can discriminate against people of other faiths and ethnicities. They, they have significant tax advantages. They have they don't have to open their books to the the IRS the way that other non-religious nonprofits have to in order to justify their tax exemptions. When faith communities are engaged in explicitly partisan politics, often they try to really have it both ways. They say, well, we want to be able to say and do whatever we want, including getting involved in partisan politics but we don't touch our exemptions and don't make us follow anti-discrimination law. And above all, don't make us open our books or make our finances transparent because we want that privilege. Often these uh, religious communities, especially those that are the most political churches, which are often right-wing churches, are really trying to have, in their, have their cake and eat it too. But this doesn't, of course, mean that churches should shy away from helping those in need. I mean, that is precisely what what they should do with all those privileges. Let's go back to where this conversation started with public education. Um, the PA Family Institute has been really successful in infiltrating public schools, uh, school districts here in Bucks County and throughout Pennsylvania, um, both through their own politicking with school board races and, and through their legal arm, uh, the Independence Law Center, uh, which has been secretly invited into local school districts like Central Bucks School District and Penridge School Di District to craft policy through a reactionary Christian anti-LGBTQ lens on issues ranging from book banning policies to bathroom policies to school athletics and curriculum. Why do you think the Christian right views public education as both such a target and a prize? The leadership of the Christian right has for decades now been telling us that they want to demolish the system, the public school system, and replace it with Christian schools funded by taxpayer dollars through vouchers and other privatization schemes. That sort of hostility to public education goes very, very deep. I think it has to do with sort of contempt for pluralism, a contempt for Pluralism, the commitment to human rights, the social progress. Pardon? 
I said social progress even. Right. It has to do with their hostility to social progress um, and uh, and all, all the things that sort of represent the best of the American progress, uh, promise, the best of the American promise. As we're wrapping up here, do you have any suggestions for folks who want to, one, protect and reinforce the separation of church and state, and two, organize against this kind of power-hungry authoritarian theocratic movement with what you previously described as the the slog of democracy building? Uh, Do you have any, any suggestions for that? I think it's really important to invest in the infrastructure of democracy building. Sometimes, you know, I I would love to see investment in uh, organizations that are protecting the vote, organizations that are protecting human rights. I'd love to see a kind of alternative to the Federal Society and the Alliance Defending Freedom come up. I mean, there are some organizations that are doing really important work on that front. I think, you know, a group like Americans United for separation of church and state, so many defend democracy, other types of organizations that are doing this democracy building, they deserve our support. You know, more than that, nothing really matters more than who turns out on election day. You know, pay no attention to the polls. Thanks to uh, gerrymandering and voter suppression tactics, the Republicans do have an advantage when it comes to the vote. So we just need to get if you if you want to defeat the the agenda that sort of the MAGA Republican Party represents, it's really important to support candidates that don't with your vote. You know, I I, I always feel like you know don't just vote yourself, get your friends and family out, volunteer to babysit for somebody so they can go vote, or drive someone to the polls if they can't. It's really important to help other people feel like they have a stake in democracy and help them understand what matters. We have to remember that when we're casting our vote, it's not just about the front runner, it's about judges. The right knows this. They, a lot of events I've been to, they'll say this election is about judges, judges, judges. You know, people ask about, you know, I I heard people say, oh, what's the difference between this candidate and that candidate? I'm like, look at the Supreme Court. (laughs) Who do you want in charge of our foreign policy? Who do you want in charge of our uh, climate policy? Who do you want in charge of our ed policy? Do you want people who want to sort of strengthen our democracy or do you want people who are going to tear it down? So that that's really important. And I think the long game, taking a long view is really important. I think looking at the past and looking at the future is really critical. It really helps sort of make us see beyond the news cycle of the present moment. You know, the right has used for many years the the tools of democracy to, to tear down our democracy. And I think those same principles can be used to restore it. Finally, you mentioned to me earlier that you're working on a new book. Can you give us a hint about what it's about or is that being kept uh, closely guarded? Oh, I can absolutely uh, give you a hint about what that's about. I would say that it's basically about the anti-democratic reaction. I really want to answer the question, how is it possible that one of our two major political parties has become ex- explicitly anti-democratic? If you look at shutdown shambles right now, you can see that there's a sector of the Republican Party that just simply doesn't want to govern. They want to burn it all down and take control over whatever remains. So I look at different aspects of that, you know, that anti-democratic reaction. 
I look at sort of um, what's happened to religious nationalists, that sort of uh, the, the Christian right and other sort of extremist religious movements. I look at the new right, a kind of um, very explicitly anti-democratic movement whose leaders are not necessarily motivated by religion, but understand the utility of religion in getting uh, the rank and file on board. And I look at some other sectors of this reaction and try to offer a compelling analysis of how so many Americans have, frankly, are, are either turned against democracy or supporting an anti-democratic uh, reaction. And I, you know, I just want to say finally, you know, by going inside the movement, exposing its methods and aims, and also identifying pressure points or possible areas of conflict, I think we can point a way toward a more democratic future. Well, I could talk to you for hours about this, but neither of us have the time, um, unfortunately. But for those of you listening who want to learn more, please go to your local bookstore and buy Catherine's book, The Power Worshippers, Inside the Dangerous Rise of Religious Nationalism, and follow her on Twitter at Kath S. Stewart. That's at K-A-T-H-S-S-T-E-W-A-R-T. Catherine, thank you so much for coming on The Signal. It's a pleasure. Pleasure to speak with you. Thank you so much for having me. If the Bucks County Beacon is going to be here for the long haul and save the area from becoming a news desert where extremism and authoritarianism flourishes, we need the community to invest in our independent media project so that we can continue to produce this podcast and publish news, analysis, and progressive opinion daily on our website. Go to buckscountybeacon.com support the beacon and become a monthly sustainer today. This has been The Signal, a podcast by the Bucks County Beacon. I'm Cyril McGlego, editor-in-chief and host. For more progressive news, analysis, and opinion from Bucks County and beyond, go to www.buckscountybeacon.com. The Signal is produced by Kevin Mahoney of Raging Chicken Media. Intro-outro music by Moff et Tula, featuring Cartas a Felice, used with permission. (laughs) 